This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Robert Kim and Chris Polsky as they talk about trends in church planting. Robert Kim is assistant professor at Covenant Theological Seminary. Chris Polsky serves as the lead pastor of Trinity Church Kirkwood in St. Louis. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as they talk about the past, present, and future of church planting. I'm going to give us some quick guiding verses in regards to church planting that if you think are just important to keep in the back of our minds as we move forward through the seminar. Again, we're going to look at past, present, and then look toward the future as much as we can. So guiding verses is what we started with in terms of the description. Christ is the same. The need for church planting is the same. The, mo- right? the message doesn't change in any single way, shape, or form. We keep that within the backdrop of it all. Christ is the head of the church. As the head, right, desiring to see the, tr- the church itself flourish for his honor and for his glory. Uh, this third verse, right, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It's Christ who is building the church. I don't know how many church planners I've talked to that. As much as we seek to be building the church, the reminder is it's God who is doing that work. And if our assurance and our confidence comes in understanding that, we, even during a time of a pandemic, right, should be something that we should take comfort in and say, has the Lord stopped building his church? No. He's continued to advance it. And just to give you, a, again, as a premise, as we look about our culture right now, the need right, will actually be greater as we consider ourselves even coming out of this pandemic. And again, whereas I even pray the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, uh, this has been true right, since the very beginning. The harvest is plentiful. Every one of you in your context, no matter which way you look at it, uh, most of you will be able to say, you look at a community. And I've just moved here to St. Louis two years ago. And it's funny because people would call this a very Christianized city. But I look at my community and I say to myself, man, there's so many people here who are not walking with the Lord, who do not know Christ. I think the harvest is plentiful. And it's just an interesting contrast for people who have lived here for so long who would say, no, you know, St. Louis is a rich city. We got to reach those unreached cities like Denver or New York or whatever it might be. And I would say, no, the, the harvest is here too. Let's just have eyes to see it. And would we even be able to have opportunities to, again, see that God would raise up these laborers? And so let's take confidence with this as kind of our guiding framework of understanding the work of church plan. With that said, I want to give a couple more backdrops. The backdrops are these. The first is this, um, that we would understand that uh, because of the pandemic, this is Barner's research, and this would have been true a little bit in terms of churches closing just because of age um, and where we were at in terms of Christendom within the United States. So Barner released this in September 2020 saying that one in five churches would not uh, make it during the pandemic. 
And so here's the thing that I want to double down with in terms of church planning. Church planning, if the need was great before the pandemic, it's only become greater, and we're simply not keeping up with that. So by looking at trend lines, what I'm hoping that we're going to at least be able to do is to say to the, ask the question, if the need is at an all-time high and we're not planting enough churches, and I don't know if some of you guys who were at the M&A committee meeting this morning, but I was there and I caught just a brief report from Brandon Anderson, and he said in 2019, as a denomination, we only planted 25 churches. Now again, we'll, we'll give a great break for the fact that we are in a pandemic, but 25 does not keep up with the need for the population growth in any one of our given areas, right? And that was as a denomination as a whole, including Canada, right? So with that said is this, the need is at an all-time high, and coming out of the pandemic, hopefully some of you are beginning to feel a little bit more of that urgency and actually the confidence that we can move forward accordingly. This other statistic that I do want to keep in mind just is this. In 2045, again, every census data, you know, reporting, et cetera, will say that we're going to reach majority-minority nation. And with that said, the idea then of diversity or multi-ethnic, multicultural church is going to become all the more important. And here's the thing, right? I'm not sure about you in terms of like Christian music. I say this generally speaking. Christians are always a little bit late to show up to the game. Here's the thing. We have about 25 years to prepare for this as a church. The need for multi-ethnic, multicultural churches is going to be present, whether we like it or not. It's coming to our cities. It's coming to your doorsteps. Some of you feel it more uh, readily available than in other cities. But here's the thing. If that's coming, I'm going to ask or at least challenge us as a denomination to say, will we be ready to, reach that, to meet that need that we know is coming? Let's not be late to show up to that game, right? It's literally there. We have 25 years to prepare for this, hopefully faithfully. And again, some of our cities are beginning to set even earlier than now. And so let's begin to kind of handle that. Here's where we're going to go. So past, present, and future as much as we can. I'm going to handle past, present. We're going to take a break and give a little time for Chris to talk about his dissertation. And then we're going to look toward future trends. And then we're going to spend some time doing Q&A. In broad stroke overviews, these are some of the things I just want to highlight. Again, this is not exhaustive. So when you're listening to me, don't say, okay, Dr. Kim, you miss X, Y, or Z. And of course, I'm going to miss some things. Some of this is going to be conjecture, meaning some of this are just going to be thoughts that I've talked with other missional leaders from other denominations as we've kind of gathered and said, hey, here's where we're thinking church planning will be really impacted as we think about us moving forward as a denomination. And again, with that said, that's kind of where we're going to go, past, present, and future. Let me highlight the beginning of the past. And again, I did have a conversation with Dr. Douglas to prepare for the seminar, and I kind of asked him, I said, hey, Dr. Douglas, what's one thing that you want to make sure you get conveyed? He's not here. He's in Scotland at his granddaughter's uh, wedding, just an FYI, for those of you who are wondering. But all that to say, I said, what's one thing you want to convey about the past? Your 32 years of teaching experience, having over 300 church planners come out, P PCA church planners come out of the Covenant Seminary, what's one thing you want to get? And he said this quote, the efficacy of every church plant a church. He said, apparently, at the very beginning, both M&A and Covenant had this very strategic initiative of saying, what would it look like if from the very beginning we challenged every single church to say, your benchmark is that you would multiply? And his whole point is, if we look at past review, is that most of the churches didn't reach that benchmark. We had this ambitious vision and a goal and a lofty one to say, every church needs to get at this. But the majority of churches haven't. I will say this just as an exhortation. I recently spoke at a church planning missions conference. And long story short, one church came up after and said, hey, Dr. Kim, after 150 years, we're beginning to plant our first church. If you think about the older or aged women in scriptures, they're saying, oh, well, how old can a woman be and be barren? The beautiful thing about spiritual churches or brides 
is we can never get too old to actually conceive and catch this vision. So even though that might be true that we didn't reach the initiative of every church plan a church, hopefully a lot of your churches and in your networks, you're able to cast this vision of realizing, you know what? There's not a church that's too old that can actually lay or cast a vision toward beginning to see this. So let me give some broad stroke highlights in regards to the past. So the past is this. We were a startup denomination, so church planning was actually more of a necessity. It wasn't out of a vision to actually see that we wanted to reach more people. We're like, we literally came, you know, PCA, RPCS, et cetera, in terms of that merger, which we just needed to start up. So it was the startup kind of getting out there. It was very centralized, meaning um, the point there is that it was denomination kind of led and controlled. Tribalism, which is to say this, or we could even use the word denominationalism, was more present. And that is to say that, you know, we said, hey, let's reach a community. There's not a Presbyterian church there. There's a Baptist church. There's a Pentecostal church. So let's go and plant the Presbyterian church. And again, these were kind of the motifs or the trends that initially started church planting efforts. It was very high cost. And it still remains to be high cost today, but the high cost being this, is we take a look at a, a desire to see a plant in any given area. We say, well, here's the call of a planter and all the costs, et cetera, involved. And it was rather high. PCA, on average, especially compared to other denominations, the call packages are rather significant. And I'm going to use my ethnic card, if you don't mind. Especially for minorities, right, the call packages become actually an extreme burden to want to go and see plant, uh, church plants actually in those given regions. They tend to be rather homogenous in terms of its ethnicity and its ethnic makeup, right? We tend to see that as we look out at GA, right? The majority makeup is still relatively the same. And here's a highlight that I want to just kind of give. When we looked toward leadership development, here was kind of the emphasis in the beginning, in my opinion. It was king, prophet, priest. And what we mean by that, so think about the offices of Christ in the sense of like kind of functions of roles. It was a strong leader type who had gifts of preaching and, and ministry of word, and then this idea that they actually really kind of cared well for people, pastoral in one's essence, right? So the ascension of leadership was much more in terms of this idea, let's get at the leaders, let's get at those who had high charisma, high vision, high capacity, and the other things were not, they weren't not as important, but the types of planters that we were often looking for were the kingly, prophet, priestly leaders, in terms of ascension. These are talking about the earlier years of church planning within the PCA. And here is a statistic that I just want to give across and why 25 is obviously difficult, but 50 is also difficult for me personally. On average, as a denomination, we've kind of stayed at 50 per year from the very beginning, right? Obviously less than the very beginning, but at least for the past couple of decades, it's just been 50. And we've settled for that, right, as a denomination saying 50 seems good. 50 is where we're at. 50 is where we, we're doing it. But again, to put that in perspective of need, it's simply not sufficient for the growth that's going on. The last kind of point that I just want to make really quick in terms of the past is this. The plateau rates of these church plants were often at 7 to 10. And then, again, there is some conjecture here, but with this conjecture, follow with me and, and think about life cycles of churches. If the plateau rates were 7 to 10, right, they went through these cycles, they've plateaued, there's growth development, et cetera, things like that, maybe some steady growth here and there, but eventually it meant the decline over its period, right? So if you think about, like, business organizations, they say this, that most businesses won't reach past 100. Most of our churches, and this is why I think Chris's research is going to be important, won't reach past 100. So if our plateau rates were 7 to 10, I'm going to make that as a contrast as we move forward to the present. The plateau rates, and the reason why I'm drawing your attention to this trend, if it is shrinking or, or lessening, which is what other denominations are seeing as well, 
I think it's problematic for the types of churches that we're also planting as well. So let me move forward. Um, think about this in terms of historical data. So in terms of strategy, this is something that we used to teach in terms of M&A, uh, is we take a look at the errors of church planning. So there was the organizing error. That's simply what I referenced in the 1970s and 1985s. Then the church planning strategy was mainly in the, the, the flagship era. So, for example, if we think of churches like Redeemer, Perimeter, et cetera, et cetera, is to say, let's take a, look, take a look at the major cities and let's plant at least one stake in the ground so that we had one major presence within that city. So a lot of the emphasis in terms of church planning was find a credible kingly leader who could come in there, put the stake in the ground. That person then would infect, right, the particular region to see church planning kind of mobilize within those regions. Here's the thing just really quick about flagship errors that I want to just kind of note. I think flagship errors had its merit, had its point. We can obviously see its fruitfulness. But the onus of a flagship error means that the flagship church needs to own and bear its responsibility to be a flagship which is that they see themselves as literally being kind of the life-giving institution to give away itself, right, for its region. When a flagship does not do that, and I can see this at least in some contrast if I were to do from New York, let's say to Philadelphia, where I was for 13 years, when a flagship church doesn't own its flagshipness, it doesn't resynergize this idea of really, in essence, blessing or the flourishing, right, of the church planning efforts within that region. When a church, like, let's see, the contrast of that Redeemer, that really sought to say, hey, how do we work in conjunction with the city to see its flourishing? That's the owning of the flagship. And then moving on, it moved to the grassroots. And then lastly, currently right now, we're kind of in this ecosystems model. Chris Vogel's over there. If you want to talk about ecosystems, he would love to talk about that. In fact, I'm going to show his little slide in a second. But here we go. Moving forward. We're now in the present stage. And so, again, I'm going to make some quick contrast. Uh, what is the present? Well, I would say this. We've experienced what some, and not necessarily hasn't been factually stated, but in my opinion, I would say this. is We're we on the cusp of what we would say a church planning movement. If we go kind of roughly from the 1995, you could say it earlier, well, let's say with the Rick Warrens, et cetera, and things like that. But 1995, where Driscoll and others kind of were more prominent on the board, where we saw a resurgence of more young people say, hey, you know what? Existing churches is not going to be my thing, but I'm going to go and plant churches. And we see this in terms of data, I would say, in terms of uh, people that were going to assessment centers saying, hey, I feel a call toward church planning. Let me explore this. And even though there was failure rates, there was also effectiveness, and we saw a resurgence of this idea of a church planting movement. More and more people were interested in going to plant new churches. It was still rather centralized, and what I mean by that is still everyone came to Atlanta. There was this idea of centralization in terms of what it was, and also in this idea is that centralization then sent out to different regions. I'm going to contrast that at the end toward things. It was still relatively tribal. What I mean by that is there is still an emphasis toward, again, denominationalism. Uh, it's the Presbyterian flag, it's stake in the ground, if we even want to go in. There was still a high cost, and I'm going to say, note this, that in this kind of movement era, with the emphasis on urban, I'm going to let someone back uh, in, in the back talk about rural areas as well, but because so much of the emphasis during this time was also on urban context, it also elevated the cost, right? So the same cost I mentioned in regards to the past remain true even for today. So again, it, it limits and there's all these kind of things. It was still remains relatively homogenous, right? If you use Mark Diaz's research in terms of mosaics, he says if you just use a 20% variance to say that a church would be 20% anything other, it's considered multi-ethnic and multicultural, that we still see about 90% of the churches still don't meet that criteria, right? So let's just think about that. 
We're headed toward 2045. How do we deal with that? What I would argue is this. In terms of leadership assessment here, is we then began to see that there was a lack of kingly leaders. And so there was more of an emphasis in using this kind of metric or this, di- this paradigm. It was a prophet-king-priest mix. What I mean towards that, so think about it, right? Everyone wanted to preach like the next great XYZ preacher. And so the emphasis was, if I want to plant a church, I have to be able to preach. We're going to send the person to say they have to preach in order to plant a church. And there's some truthfulness, so don't get me wrong, especially the call as a teaching elder. But at the same time, the emphasis was on priests over that, then of king, of priests in terms of matrix. Moving forward, same idea, 50 church plants a year. We remain very constant or very stable. And again, the plateau rates, and this is where it becomes problematic. Our plateau rates currently, and this is, again, not just for the PCA, but this is across other denominations as well that they're saying, that they're seeing the plateau rates happening a lot earlier. A church will come in, it will start, but roughly speaking, from years five to seven, there'll be a plateau. And because that's earlier, my proposition to you all is this. The longevity and the health of that church will be determined as we think about moving forward as well. So I think it's not just a matter of planting churches, but we also want to get at planting healthier churches. Think about this in terms of the need. How much church planting do we need? I'm not going to go over all the data here, but just think through that idea, right? So between 2010, this is a summary statement, between 2010 and 2050, we need, and this is just to have a 1 to 1,000. This is to keep constant with this idea that for every 1,000 loss, that there would be this idea of of one church being present. We need to net at least 86,000 churches to keep up with that ratio, on average 2,100 hundred churches a year. This is across denominations. Let me give you again the same reminder. Last year, 2019, we planted 25 churches. Moving forward, this is coming from Paul, and these were, I borrowed from him before, right? On average, again, this is across all denominations, 4,000 new churches, 37, closing each year, net gain with 300. It takes about 2,000 to 3,000 churches a year to keep up with population growth. The PCA plants about 50 churches per year, and it closes, on average, 35 to 40. We don't know statistically what the data will be in re- with respect to the pandemic. 80% of churches are declined or pla- plateaued. PCA may be a little bit better. And again, this is debated. I know Chris can bring some data about this, that the, that the PCA is statistically at least the oldest denomination in the U.S. What that said is this. This is the ecosystem model. This is where we're at right now. We're trying to strategize and say, how do we create ecosystems that rapidly produce church planners? And I think this is great because we need this. We need to think more strategically in regards to saying we need to get at more church plants in all the different given regions that we are. And Lord willing, I'm going to make sure that we say this, this is actually going to do that. What we're going to move to next is actually asking this question then of where do we go towards this moving forward? But here I'm going to invite Chris to come up. And Chris did a research, his research on this very topic of transition from founding pastor to successor pastor. And here's why this is so important. In creating healthy churches, we also need to have healthy transitions. And so all that to say, I'm just going to let Chris go from there. Thanks, guys. Good to see you all. Thanks for a few minutes to, to share with you today. I, I want to tell you why I got interested in this. I was a part of a staff of a very large PCA church. It was founded back in the 90s, one of those kind of flagship churches that Robert was talking about. It grew. It flourished. It became massive, 1,700 people. Uh, the founding pastor of that church passed away, and within a couple years, it had collapsed to 500 people. Um, in, in my life, I moved to become a, a pastor down in Georgia from that staff. I became the first successor pastor of a church that had been planted about seven or eight years before I got there and had a really hard time trying to adjust to that culture and figure out how to thrive in that culture. It wasn't ready for me, and I wasn't ready for it. 
came back to St. Louis. I planted a church here. Uh, I've been involved in this church for 14 years. I transitioned from founding pastor to lead pastor now. Um, I got interested in the dynamics of the transition that occurs from our church plants to their first successor pastor because, frankly, the statistics are not very good. Uh, I started a survey early on in my dissertation research where I asked a lot of my friends in the ministry to send me information about churches that had transitioned well. And I got about 40 churches from guys like you saying, hey, here's the church you want to study that did it really well. I got on the phone. I talked to all 40 churches and zero met the criteria of a healthy transition. Let me tell you a little bit about what that would look like. Um, either the founding pastor was badly hurt in the transition. The first successor pastor only lasted a short period of time and was badly hurt in the transition. The church lost massive numbers of people in the transition. The church split during the transition. The church splanted during the transition, or the church closed during the transition. That was 40 out of 40. And understand, these were all churches that were recommended to me as having had a healthy transition. Now, I got on the phone with these folks, and I saw, oh, this church is still doing well. They're, they're still growing. There's, their successor pastor is doing great. That's a healthy transition, right? Got on the phone with the founding pastor, and he said, I left the ministry because of what happened at the end of my tenure. Or I got on the phone and they said, yeah, we're doing great now, but we had to close the church and rebrand ourselves and replant because of the damage that was done during the process. And really what I saw in the research was that most of us who plant churches are entrepreneurial guys. We love the energy of it. We love the vision and enthusiasm. We can see the big picture and we're, look, there's the hill. I'm taking the hill, come on, let's go. Kind of the kingly leader type guys. And oftentimes, people get tired after a while, and they don't know whether they want to take that another, another hill and another hill after that. They want to say, can we, can we just breathe a little bit? How do we do this? And so I started digging into that and, and asking a lot of questions about that. Some of the transition difficulties that we've seen in the research is dramatic dip in attendance, high staff elder turnover, the unintentional interim factionalism, surrounding the fate of the founding pastor's pet ministries. You know, you got something you love doing. Uh, you build that ministry. You plant it. It looks like you. Most of our churches kind of take on the personality of the founding pastor. But then all of a sudden, you're not there anymore. And people factionalize over the existing uh, presence of that ministry in the church. Uh, and some other things I already uh, mentioned. Um, the thing that I want to say, and the thing that goes hand in hand with what Robert's been talking about, is that all of us want to see our churches survive beyond us. We want to see a legacy of a healthy, thriving church where another man comes in and leads it on to better things than we could lead it to. But unfortunately, we're not doing the work that we need to do in the early phases of our planting to make our churches uh, transitionable. We also love the people. We want to see them thrive in our context, but oftentimes you come back a few years later and they've left the church and they've gone somewhere else. That great elder that was your partner in the church. So what do we need to do um, about that? Well, the thing that I've found in my research is that planning for the day of initial pastoral succession may be the most important leadership task a founding pastor and church leadership team will ever face. And unfortunately, we're not thinking about it. 
I get calls now from people that want help with transition, and they say, oh, our founding pastor just announced to the congregation that he's leaving in six months. Can you help us? And I'm like, I can't help you. Because the stuff I want you to be thinking about is stuff you should have been thinking about five years ago or 10 years ago. I've been in my church now for 14 years, and I'm only 52 years old. I'll probably be there another 10, 15 years, but we have already have a pastoral succession planning task force at work in our church so that when my time to go uh, comes, and I don't know when that's going to be. Uh, the first church I was in, my, my wife's here, it was her father was the pastor. He died of cancer unexpectedly. He wasn't planning to leave. Nobody was planning for him to leave. But the principle in the midst of all this, brothers, is that every pastor is an interim pastor. And until we get it through our head that all of us are interims, we're never going to be able to make the progress that we need to be able to make together to understand that I'm part of a plan that the Lord has for a season, and then I'm not. If I envision myself as the perpetual permanent pastor of this church and I make all the ministries structured around me and I've got to be involved in everything and I've got to know about what everything's doing, which, by the way, is what happens in a church plant by necessity because you're often the only staff guy there. And so we build these pathways of ministry that are very dependent on us and we're not ready when the time for transition comes to be able to help our churches transition in a healthy way. So what are the seven core principles that, that I uh, would like to suggest to you. I don't have time to talk about all these today. I just want to show them to you. If you'd like to talk about it afterward, I'd love to do it. Every pastor is an interim pastor. Founding pastors make a unique mark. A lot of people say to me, well, they're just the same as a legacy pastor. And there is overlap. A guy that's been a legacy pastor for 20, 25 years, mm -hmm. he does leave a very unique mark. But there's something unique about a founding pastor who sets the DNA of a church in a very early way that uh, uh, needs to be addressed. And if you don't address it, you're going to have problems in transition. Plan for transition now. And I mean that. When you go home to your churches on Monday, start planning for transition. It's time. You've been there a year. I'm not ready to plan for transition. It's time. It's time to start planning for it now, being aware of it, and there's ways that we can do that. You have to continually recalibrate your ministry culture for smoother transition. For instance, most of us preach most of the time, right? I mean, if you're a church planter, you're preaching 80, 90 percent of the time, maybe. Well, eventually, you're not going to be preaching. Uh, and if you leave a legacy of being in the pulpit 80, 90 percent of the time, people start to develop a very un a unique and idiosyncratic view of what good preaching is. It's your preaching. It's the way you do it. And when the next guy comes in behind you, and he's an awesome preacher, but he doesn't do it the way you do it, maybe he's more of the priestly type, more, maybe more of the prophetic type, people are going to say, well, that's not very good. I can't follow that. That guy doesn't do it the same way. He's not as funny, or he's not as exegetical, or he doesn't use enough illustrations. And people leave our churches because of this. How do we build a healthy pathway for transition in something like our pulpit ministry years before we come to the point where we're ready to go on to the next thing in our life or retire. Uh, fifth thing, transition is not over when the new pastor is installed. Uh, my research shows that there is a three-year time uh, clock on transition, and most of the guys that are unintentional interims will be gone in less than three years. If they make it more than three years, then I can say that they probably are going to survive. 
But it takes three years to find that out. And if you are not on top of it in the same way you are in planning for a pulpit search committee and all the effort and time that goes into that, if you're not doing similar things after the fact and staying on top of that founding pastor, if he's still in the church, even if he's not in the church, staying next to that first successor pastor so that he knows how to connect into the cultures and ministries of the church, then uh, it's easy for things to erode very quickly. Uh, there is going to be loss in transition. There will be loss. I don't know how to say it. There's going to be loss. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. How do we deal with that? How do we engage that? And then, obviously, in the end, there is hope, even in a difficult transition. And I can tell you stories about that over uh, the course of the research. So what can you be doing now to help your congregation be better prepared for a healthy first transition? Uh, just a couple thoughts, and I'll hand it back over to Robert. You need to think about and pray about your own ideal scenario for concluding your tenure at your church and how you would like that succession plan to go. Really, it's going to fall to you to be the guy that brings this topic up because people aren't going to want to go to you and say, hey, pastor, how long are you going to be here? <laughs> so you're the one that needs to say to your elders, hey, I want to talk to you guys about the way that I see this thing coming to a conclusion. Maybe you're going to leave and plan another church. Maybe you want to stay in the church. Maybe you want to retire. You need to lead that conversation. You need to be thinking about it right now. Get your sessions or at least one or two key leaders thinking about the topic of pastoral succession planning. Initiate the conversation, and I can give you ideas about how to do that. Finally, ask yourself the question, what would happen to the key ministries in my church if I were to disappear from them tomorrow? Always ask yourself that question. What would happen if you weren't there tomorrow? Because it can happen. It can happen very quickly. What becomes of the ministries of that church? And how can I uh, work with my leadership to make sure that the ministries that have been built in your churches are strong, sustainable, and transitionable? And again, I don't have time to go into details with that now. Um, I've got a lot of books to recommend to you. If you want to talk to me about it, I'd love to talk to you afterward. I have a website uh, where I do coaching and um, just coming alongside you if you want to start talking about this and how you initiate these conversations and get your people engaged in these things. I'd love to do that because we want to plant churches. We want them to be healthy. We want them to survive and thrive so they can plant more churches that are healthy and beautiful and good. And so uh, it's a burden I think we all have together. Robert. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate uh, his topic so much. And to be honest, all these topics, I feel like we could just keep talking for an hour so we have limited time so you can understand why we're kind of not rushing, but we're going through this rather fast. So here's the thing. Now there's the real conjecture, which is what does the future hold in terms of trends uh, moving forward in regards to church planning? And actually, Chris, I'm going to throw one question back at you at the end of this time, which is to say, if you could add to this list, what other thing would you add? All right. So here are going to be some broad strokes things that, again, I want to get at. First is this. In terms of the idea of vision, we need to have a greater vision. To me, 50 a year is not sufficient. We need to get at this, right? So to me, just roughly speaking, at least 10% of the growth. Uh, just really quick, as of today, right, or yesterday, I should say, uh, in the PCA, we have 1,937 churches and mission churches across the United States, or at least that's according to the website. So I just put that in. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. I'm looking at M&A guy. I just went on the M&A website and, and did the thing. Um, and again, if we only planted 25, that's actually a, an interesting number for a lot of different reasons. But again, thinking through closures, right? We need to have a vision. That 2045 date, keeping in mind that it's coming our way. And then again, church health. So these are the broad straight kind of things I want to get at in terms of the future. Organic. And what do we mean by organic? 
um, that more and more of the church planning movements that we're going to see probably in our denomination is not going to be looking at it from a national perspective, but looking at like indigenous networks and regions, seeing them to raise up their own leaders. So back in the day, for example, let's say it was Charlotte looking for a church planner. They might call up a different seminary and say, hey, do you have a graduate? We would love to see if they're interested in church planning. Come over to our area. They would come three, four, five years, learn the community, try to plan a church, et cetera, and things like that. But what if instead we saw, in essence, church planning movements happen within your region? So let's say going back to Charlotte. If it was Charlotte that you said, hey, we have a young man. He's in youth group. He's in college. Man, he's a, he's a fighter. He's a go-getter. He, shows, he knows how to win people to Christ, yada, yada, yada. We want to invest in him now. We believe that we can actually grow them and not even have to send them out. But this idea of organic that's happening much more regional. There are some of this happening throughout the United States, but I think uh, moving forward that this is going to have to be the case. If we want to increase ra- rapidly the idea of raising up church planters, it's not going to be outsourcing, but it's going to be insourcing. Two, networks. The, the reason why networks are so important, actually, so when I tell someone about church planning, I say three things, right, that are actually critical. I say networking, assessing, and coaching are absolutely critical for church planners to get at, right? So networking, assessing, coaching. The networking piece is this, that within any given region, you don't consider just a call to your church or that one area, but consider how you're going to be connected, whether it be to Presbytery or other church planners, for your spiritual vitality and growth and development. So what that said is this. You look not just at a region, but you look at the network, and you can look at even some of the networks that are going on, including Wisconsin. I'm just looking at Chris for some things. But Wisconsin, I think, is doing a great job. I think Florida is doing a great job. Where these networks are, where they're saying, hey, we're not just going to call you as a planter, but we're going to come alongside you. But that these micro networks are going to be the key. Sorry, Mid-South. I see you there, Clint. My bad. So, but you get the idea, right? But the idea here, right, is that networks are going to be key moving forward about how we're going to accelerate church planting. It's not just going to be the singular call of one area or one church or, again, one planter kind of coming, but networks being absolutely critical. Again, this is, these are trends happening not just in the PCA, but across in other denominations. This idea of missional presence, that it's not as Sunday-centric, but much more community-centric. The flourishing and desiring, again, to be missional in the particular areas. This next one's going to be kind of maybe hard for you to swallow, but as we think about the cost models of church planning, and this is, again, true across every denomination that I've talked to, saying that this is a movement moving forward that we need to consider and perhaps even you know, move into our presbyteries and our M&A committees, bivocational, co-vocational models of church planning. So again, I'm at a seminary, so this is a weird thing for me to say, but I'm just going to say it, right? What if our graduates, who even though they have you know, a, a master's of divinity, MABTS, et cetera, go out and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to work as a bartender or a cab driver and just get to know the people. And, by, and let me make quickly the distinction because some of this might be new for some of you. The difference between bivocational and co-vocational is bivocational is just another job that provides sustenance and living. Co-vocational actually gets tied to the mission of church planning. It's saying, how do I get to know the community? How do I get to evangelize? How do I get, in the, you know, get, to get involved with what I'm already doing with the church planning? But my job just happens to come alongside that. So if you make that distinction, a by versus co, but think about that from the standpoint of how do we accelerate church planning? What, we can get folks out there to be able to do more effective, healthier church planning by simply saying, hey, we want to actually not only uh, say this is a good idea, but we want some of our presbyteries and our networks to be able to see that this is something that we need to strategically look at moving forward. The idea of heterogeneous or multi-ethnic, multicultural, again, of 2045 is coming. We need to get at that, right? Um, let me just kind of maybe qu- make one quick kind of comment and still go into the prophet priest 
King kind of analogy that we've done uh, earlier. Um, so if you had to read Resilient Ministry, those folks that did that research, right, which was a longitudinal, big, huge study in terms of research development on what keeps pastors faithful in ministry, if you know one of the factors saying it was a high degree of EQ and CQ, right, so let's use just CQ to begin with, that basically, in essence, those who had a higher degree of cultural intelligence were more faithful and resilient within ministry was just a common thread, right? Why not consider that in regards to even our church planning efforts that we would want to get people who have this idea to say that they actually look at cultural intelligence and say that they come and desire to be, again, multi-ethnic, multicultural to the best that their context provides and affords. So that CQ piece lends into my EQ piece next here. A high degree of EQ is understanding ability, our understanding of our own emotions, but then also how we relate to others. And so prior, again, if we've gone from the king, prophet, priest, if we transition from a prophet, king, priest, here is going to be my suggestion. And again, this is conjecture, but follow with me. Especially post-pandemic, we do not realize the trauma by which the entire world has gone through. If you talk to any counselor right now, my wife is actually doing her MAC, but all that to say is this. If you talk to any counselor right now, they are overloaded with cases because there is so much trauma. The pandemic has just simply exposed that. Coming out of this, my argument or my case that I'm trying to present to you a little bit today is this. The types of leaders that we will need in terms of at least looking at, and in my opinion, is this idea of priest, prophet, king as a necessity, meaning this. The church planters that, are plant, that will plant in the future, if they do not know how to care well for people, they probably will not be able to plant well because they will not have credibility within their community because people right now, again, are simply hurting and there's a triaging that's absolutely necessary. I would argue that it was a little bit before, but my case simply being this, that as we think about the people moving forward, we almost need, in essence, like EMTs who know how to care for their communities and to present the gospel in that winsome way to move church planting forward. The next thing, just again, is that we need increased church plants. And then here's the thing, going back to the plateau rates, we need to get at healthier church plants. We cannot see plants plateauing at an earlier rate. That simply will not do well and bode well for our denomination moving forward. And actually, Chris, I'll pause and just kind of say, if you could add to this, what's one other trend that you see moving forward? I agree with the priest thing. Um, I, in the research I did, when people, most churches want to move away from the style of pastor they had in the first generation to a different style of pastor in the second generation, but they don't really know that. Um, and so the search teams and everything come together and they, they end up looking at uh, uh, a way to do something that goes with the way the first generation guy did it. And I, I think we need to know ourselves better. Uh, and, and, and I think in the church planting world, we're thinking about the people out there that uh, are our audience that we're trying to reach. But we also need to know our own community well yeah. so that we can connect with that community and, and, and thrive in the connections that we have for, for that planting effort. So that, that'd be one thing I think we should be thinking about. Yeah, great. Um, just last couple of things, and then we're going to go into a Q&A, if you don't mind. Um, so there's a bunch of missiologists who came together, church planning leaders, and they created this thing called Church Planning Manifesto. It came out of the sentence. I just want to commend it to you. I'm just going to highlight a couple of points. They created kind of 12 points of this manifesto, and I'm just going to highlight four of them, um, and just hear them as they might re- uh, 
resonate with our understanding of where we are as a denomination moving forward. And the four I'm going to highlight are simply six, eight, ten, and twelve. One, multi or six, multiplication movements require local churches taking responsibility for raising and spiritually parenting future church planting teams. Eight, honor leadership from the harvest and contextualized pathways of leadership development. That's looking at indigenous leadership. Indigenous leadership is a missional term, a missiology term, but again, I think from a church planning world, we should have adopted that many years ago as well. Ten, regular and ongoing evaluation of mission strategic structures and systems is necessary for contextually appropriate methods of models. Um, and this is that idea of innovation that we need to get at um, the types of churches we're planning, the idea of co-vocational that we need to really get at as being kind of the innovative piece. Um, lastly, uh, men and women leading in mission from different racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds is a demonstration and power of the gospel. Again, the church has been waiting for over 100 years to see more of this, right? So in the early 1900s was with that statement that the Sunday uh, morning hour is the most segregated hour in America. That's early 1900s. It's been 100 years that we can say the same thing. Um, the the idea of this is that how do we continue to get at that? Last thing I just want to highlight is this in terms of like what would it look like if we really looked at a movement moving forward? So there's a guy named Garrison who basically did research in terms of saying he looked at church planning movements across different countries and continents and said what were the common threads and the trends there? And I'm just going to highlight these. It's just simply saying uh, I think that again for the same reason if uh, for us as a denomination if we want to get at this um, some of these things are needed or we, we will need to also consider as well. Extraordinary prayer, abundant evangelism, intentional planting of reproducing churches, the authority of God's word, local leadership, lay leadership, house churches, church planning churches, rapid reproduction, and healthy churches. These are all some of the things I've already said, which is why it's fun. When someone else says the same thing, you're like, oh, we must be thinking the same exact thing. And so, um, Lord willing, that we would see an increase and in a movement of church planting within our denomination moving forward. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces. Gifts and Graces.